from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, will the Supreme Court undermine the Paris Climate Agreement? Designing cities for self-driving cars? And Best Buy pivots on e-waste recycling. We're talking trash this week on 350. It's February 12th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here at Green Biz headquarters here with senior editor Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. Hey, yo. How's it going? It's going good. It's been a great week. Yeah, I have a question for you. What's Since that? we teased it last week, how was the Super Bowl? It was super. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know how sustainable it was, but uh, <laughs> it was definitely fun. Just, to, I mean, the whole spectacle. And I'm a logistics person. I love seeing not just the action, but how things come together and realize that, you know, in the halftime show, you never get to see how they build that in, you know, five, seven minutes. All you see, you know, they usually the first half ends, they go to commercial, they go to the anchor booth for a recap, and then they go to the talent when it starts. But I, to watch that whole thing come together and then also not to see you you watching it at TV had a much better view of Beyonce and Chris Martin and all of that. But but we could see this 12 ring circus that was going on during that. And then and how they dismantled it. And I mean, they obviously practice all year long to for those five or seven minutes. For me, I mean, the game was good, too. And uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't really have a team in the in the game, but uh, it was fun to watch. But that was really a cool, cool part of it. That's so funny you mentioned that. I was just reading another firsthand perspective that described it as like watching people frantically building Legos in real life, like life-size stage Legos. Um, but yeah, I think we can all agree that Beyonce killed it. Sorry, Coldplay. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I think that's... That was uh, the weekend in review. So <laughs> yeah. let's move on to the weekend review. So kicking off the week, senior writer Heather Clancy took a look at an interesting corporate case study. The headline that she was working with was, Too Much of a Good Thing Hobbles Best Buy's E-Waste Recycling. Joel, I know you were tuned into this issue. What's going on here? Well, Best Buy has uh, long been at the forefront of of recycling used televisions and, and audio equipment and cell phones and all this stuff that goes into the rubric of electronic waste and computers and, and everything else. And a, a lot of the tech companies have been under pressure to do this. Uh, Best Buy, which is the source of a, a lot of these purchases, uh, set up a, sort of a public recycling, e-waste recycling thing where you go to their stores and drop off your stuff, whether you bought it there or not. And um, it was very, very successful, uh, a little too successful in some ways in that um, uh, they were getting lots and lots of, for example, uh, cathode ray tubes, the old monitors uh, and television sets that are, are illegal to dump um, in a lot of states or that have fees to dump them because they contain lead and they just they, 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 the states are charging for that to probably to discourage it. And even worse than that, uh, uh, cities 
we're telling people well, that the recycling facility, well, we don't take that, bring it to Best Buy. Or in some cases, they'd even drop stuff off themselves. So Best Buy, in a, in a be careful what you wish for uh, world, was, was, was having this very uh, successful and, and very expensive thing to do. And so they put, they put uh, some brakes on it, uh, and you can talk about what specifically they did. But I think that's sort of the context. They, first of all, started charging a little bit to do that. They also did something uh, more controversial on on the, the certification program that they were using to um, uh, for the e-waste recyclers that, they're, that this program involves. There's a couple of different recycling standards and it's it's a little bit like the Ford Stewardship Council and the and the Sustainable Forestries Initiative. They're different but similar. One is backed by environmental community, one is backed more by industry, and they're probably more alike than they are different, but there's a lot of contention, as is often the case in these things, about which one uh, is is the right one or which one is acceptable. And um, Best Buy, for whatever reason, decided to open it up to the the less acceptable to the environmental community <laughs> uh, certification program. Right. So the headlines here are that Best Buy is now instituting a new fee of $25 for every television or computer monitor that gets dropped off at one of its locations. And then the other thing that Heather notes that you are alluding to, and this is the part that has received a lot less attention, is the decision to work with electronics recyclers that carry either the e-stewards or R2 certification. So these are groups that mandate certain responsible handling processes. But again, um, like you alluded to, there's some controversy over which one of those actually has the most stringent standards. But I think really what this calls to attention is two things that we've talked about. A few, um, one is the lack of infrastructure in a lot of places to deal with processing and recycling materials. Um, and the other is the whole idea of how far away in some ways we are from a circular economy where these things can quickly be cycled back into a supply chain. It's also uh, part of the phenomenon where no green deed goes unpunished because <laughs> you have to keep in mind that Best Buy was doing this entirely voluntarily. And maybe they were pressed into it by activists originally, but they've, I would venture to say, uh, far outdid any of the uh, ex expectations of, of what activists might have asked of them. Uh, I may hear from some activists who say that's not the case. But I think I have a hunch, Lauren, that to your point, that what Best Buy is trying to do here is force the hand of state and local agencies to start stepping up their efforts to take any waste and, and dispose of it responsibly. Right. So that would sort of dovetail with things like the closed loop fund, what they're trying to do with providing funding for some of this infrastructure. So Best Buy is not really alone, but that's a, a tall order for sure. Yeah. I'm not sure that the closed loop fund is taking on e-waste. I think they may be taking on more commodities uh, like just you know glass and plastic and cardboard and some of that to strengthen that. But the 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 point is is exactly right that uh, the closed loop fund uh, is is trying to to bring more recycling into uh, into communities because companies want the recycled material at the other end. This is valuable here. I mean, there's been statistics, and I'm always bad at remembering them. That the the uh, intensity of 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 precious metals in a PC versus in rock, but it's it, it's many, many times 
um, you know, more metal in a in a PC per ounce or per pound. Yeah, than, I've, you know. I've got one of those statistics right here. An analysis conducted by TrueCost last year found that the computer and electro- electronics industry could generate up to $10 billion in cost savings and natural capital benefits by reusing certain components, particularly precious metals like gold. And just in terms of the scope of the e-waste specific challenge that we're talking about here, about 46.1 million tons of e-waste was <laughs> produced during 2014 alone, and one-third of that came from the U.S. and China alone. I think the other thing that will this may do is start to press the manufacturers, the HPs and, and Dells and Apples and Lenovo's and others, to start moving towards products that are uh, more recyclable in terms of the, uh, their ability to be disassembled. Uh, but ultimately, and I think this is a much longer-term uh, thing I think we will start to see finally the era of things where they're more readily upgradable um, and refurbishable and not use it in two years and lose it and you know send it off to Best Buy or wherever. Um, so I think that you know this may be forcing as much as this may be disappointing to some people or controversial to others. What Best Buy is doing may be forcing the hand of of, of the industry of government and others to start really addressing this much better than we've been doing. Right. And from corporate waste policy to corporate clean energy, we had another great story this week from senior writer Barbara Grady. She tuned into a webcast we actually hosted this week with a renewable energy advisory firm called Altenex. But the topic was a big one. It was looking at sort of the state of renewable energy purchasing. I think the title was Getting to Yes on Renewable Energy Deals. But the key idea here was that we've got about 5,000 renewable energy power generation projects started in the U.S., um, a wide range of how big those are and all of that. But one big stakeholder within that deployment effort are corporations. So you hear a lot about groups like Apple and Google building big utility-scale projects, but the the webcast really delved into um, some companies that you might not hear about as much, like Kohl's Department Stores and 3M. Of course, one wrench in the works of all this is that uh, there's some barriers being put up these days to... Uh, make it a little bit harder to source uh, solar energy, at least, if not wind. Uh, There's a story on Thursday in the New York Times about how solar is facing a cloudier future, and it focuses on on SolarCity and other companies pulling out of Nevada because of some changes in the utility uh, structure where they've uh, some utility policies that make solar less attractive. But we're seeing that across the country now. Uh, where uh, both utilities and state renewable energy portfolio policies are being uh, changed to make it a little bit harder. Uh, There's still that investment tax credit that the federal government passed at the end of last year, which is going to, I think, you know, counter a lot of that. And but it still um, is is still becoming a problem and making it harder for companies and residences alike to to source uh, renewable power. Mm -hmm. And in our next segment, we're going to delve into sort of the federal component of that, which is the lack of certainty around the clean power plan. Um, But I think another key component here that Barbara touched on on her story is sort of the internal politics of all of this. Sort of one of the key sticking points is still often moving the conversation about renewable energy up to the C-suite. It's still very much an economic issue. And while you've got sort of the progressive Silicon Valley types like Tim Cook from Apple jumping out and saying, we're convinced that this will uh, renewable energy will guarantee 
long-term price stability, not everyone's thinking that way. Yeah, but we're still seeing companies pull this off. I mean, Barbara wrote about uh, Kohl's Department Store. We know them well, uh, that has uh, solar on uh, most of their 1,200 stores. Uh, they're you know sort of quintessential middle America company based in Milwaukee, uh, and they're managing to do it. And of course, Walmart based in Bentonville, Arkansas, is similarly doing this, although not quite uh, on as many stores. But the point is, that a lot of companies uh, across the United States are finding ways to do this, uh, at least the ones that are committed, but I think we've just really scratched the surface. Another huge area of potential to, to bring down emissions is transportation, which we talk a lot about on this show in terms of all the futuristic stuff going on with ride sharing and autonomous vehicles. But we had a great story this week that we actually picked up from one of our content partners. That's Business Green over in the UK. And they focused on this interesting little company called Auto Trip that is aiming to transform business travel with what they call the Internet of Cars. So this is all about this vast area of better utilizing transportation data and basically they have a little transponder uh, it's a small device that looks kind of like a mini thumb drive that fits into the ports that are on now on new types of connected cars and it digitally records journeys that are being used um, for business travel not if it's a personal car you can turn it off because again all kinds of data privacy issues that come up in these sorts of things but the idea is to digitize the trips that um, people are taking for business in their corporate cars and then optimize those in terms of are there people that are going to the same places a lot? Could they be riding together or is there a more efficient route they could be taking? It's another interesting node in this mobility landscape. Well, as we've learned from Zipcar and and, uh, Uber and everything else, uh, cars are one of the great underutilized assets in terms of being able to, you know, they sit alone 95, 96, 97% of the time. And even when they're operating, they're operating at 25% capacity utilization. So in just in the pure asset utilization mode that companies are always thinking about with their equipment and buildings, this certainly makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the part that will be interesting to see this particular company, Auto Trip, is talking about how down the road they'd like to get much more into um, sort of machine learning and predictive analytics stuff that, again, our tech reporter Heather Clancy writes about a lot, um, where maybe a company wants to go even further than having two people carpool and say, you know what, maybe you guys should join a ride sharing service and we shouldn't own a fleet after all it's i think the really forward looking part of this is the stuff that gets a little slippery but would ultimately sort of make the biggest dent in how we move people around we're going to have a company called appropriately ride r-i-d-e at greenbiz 16 in a couple weeks in scottsdale uh, and talking about uh, this and and it's about actually a company that's uh, invested in by uh, bono um it's uh i think they're going to start to bring exactly this kind of of um, of ride sharing to companies and make it easier for them to to implement these kinds of things by the way i think just as an aside here that i you know the internet of cars thing it's <laughs> starting to get a little bit over the top i uh, just a, a number of, uh, of weeks ago started collecting all the internet of memes 
It and and I think I'm up to about fifty now. Yeah. Just to give you a taste. Besides, I just rolled my eyes when you said that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I think everyone heard. Uh, in addition to cars, there's energy train, you know, Internet of Energy, Internet of Trains, mobility, vehicles, moving things, and then we get into water, cities, buildings, place, park, money, coins, robots, brains. You know, the Internet I, 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 of Brains. Internet of Brains. You can look it up somewhere. <laughs> um, I won't read you the whole list, but I think this this whole meme is is getting a little bit uh, Internet of things was good enough for me, but maybe that's another story for another day. So it's been a big week for climate policy, specifically uh, with the Clean Power Plan. And this all started in a funny place for us at GreenBiz. Joining me now is senior writer Barbara Grady. How's it going, Barbara? Good. You started off this week by writing about sort of how businesses are looking at adapting to this new regulatory climate with the Clean Power Plan slated to go into effect. What was that, the gist of that? Yeah, so a whole lot of companies were kind of waiting for the signal from from the federal government, like, go. You know, they <laughs> right. have this money ready to invest. They have these these different applications and kind of innovative things that they are ready to commercialize, just need a little money, just need uh, the signal from the federal government. It's the way they put it, that this is going to be the law of the land, this is going to be the parameters of the market, and here we go, that the country is moving to clean energy away from coal and fossil fuels, and they have... They have some answers. And this threw a monkey wrench in that. Yes. So on Tuesday, the Supreme Court jumped into the fray and they issued a stay on the Clean Power Plan and said that as an appeals court considers a challenge from 29 states, dozens of corporations and industry groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, implementation of the plan should not go forward. Yeah. The key thing about the ruling, a lot of people are pointing out, is that it's a stay on enforcement. It is not on the merits of the case of the clean power plan itself, which still has to be litigated. So what the Supreme Court action does is say, we want the litigation to go forward. We wanted to hear the whole thing before this actually becomes the law of the land. So we're in limbo, basically. We're in limbo, right and that puts businesses in limbo and states in limbo and everything. One of the ironies of all this is that the market is already doing what in some ways the clean power plan is set out to do, which is to phase out coal. Uh, you just look at uh, what's going on in the coal industry. It's it, it's pretty ugly for them. Uh, just this week, a Peabody Coal, the uh, largest private sector coal company in the world, put out their fourth quarter earnings and it, it was way, way down. Their stock uh went down 11%, uh, I think, on Tuesday. And if you look at their stock over the past year, it actually peaked right around February 25th, 2015 at about $108. And right now it's about $3. So that's what $2 wow. and change. It's That's like a 99, 98% uh, drop. And, and as one headline had it this week, they're one step closer to bankruptcy. So, I mean, the coal industry is, is kind of going away, at least yeah. in the United States. Now, in the, outside the U.S., a lot of the coal companies are... are owned by the state. Uh, so they're, they're, they're going to be subsidized. It's not going to be quite the same. But it's certainly the clean power plan, which is U.S. focused, 
uh, you know, is, is already underway. So it's not saying that the, the plan isn't important because it does t- look at a lot of other things simply besides coal use, but it it is being taken care of in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that does definitely spring to mind is what this all means for the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, obviously, yeah. the Clean Power Plan was sort of a linchpin of the federal government's plan to draw down carbon emissions. Um, so whether, like you're saying, Barbara, this was sort of a matter of providing a signal that the U.S. was serious about drawing down emissions, right. even beyond what, like Joel's saying, the, the market dynamics that are already operating. Yeah. It was the key document that... Describe the U.S. plan that it put forward in Paris. So it would seem to weaken the whole deal. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, uh, it it came up in several instances as like, okay, this is like one of the concrete things, like why this wouldn't just be vaporware coming out of the the intended nationally determined contribution from the U.S. Um, but the other thing it reminds me of is that even before we went to Paris, you had a lot of sustainable business groups like BSR, the World Resources Institute, and sort of uh, clean tech luminaries like Tom Steyer that were telling businesses like we are, it's, it's great that you're setting these emissions goals, but you also need to be looking at the policy side and advocating for policies like the Clean Power Plan. Right. And Barbara, you talked to Ann Kelly at Ceres about, which has the uh, business advocacy program called BICEP. What did she have to say? She said businesses should get involved. She said they're also, we're already getting involved in in stakeholder groups in different states. That one of the kind of nice things about the Clean Power Plan is that it's not prescriptive and that states get to devise their own plans and businesses are invited to the table. But in terms of this becoming... Um, moving forward, she and others have said businesses have to put their voice out there. Yeah, and I think that's going to be one of the really interesting stories to watch in, the, in this year and coming out of Paris and in, in the wake of the Supreme Court uh, decision of what and how much will will business do here? What, what's the role they'll play and how much advocacy do they want? Because one of the one of the challenges here, and I've seen some of the reactions to the Supreme Court's decision focus on this, is that there goes certainty. I mean, yes. that the, the business totally. needs certainty and the clean power plan engendered that, but now it's it's all up for grabs. Right. It's going to delay a lot of companies' actions because they'll have that uncertainty. Sort of the matter of urgency comes into play here. The clean power plan, we were already looking at implementation in the 2020s. <laughs> so now it's like how much further down the road does this kick the can? And what does that yeah. mean for building out clean energy infrastructure in and the meantime? Even- Globally, does it mean that other countries are going to slow down what they're doing because the U.S. is slowing down its plan? All good questions, and the story we'll definitely be tracking going forward. Senior writer Barbara Grady, thanks so much. You're welcome. So when it comes to what's going on at GreenBiz, we had an interesting group come through the GreenBiz office this week. Um, I think they were going by the moniker of the Verge Brain Trust, but you know more about this, Joel. Well, yeah, we convened that as a group of of people that uh, friends of ours who are, you know, at once uh, visionary systems thinkers and articulate about this world of convergence of technologies and sustainability that's at the heart of our conference called Verge. And uh, it was just a really, really great day. Um, these are people who are venture capitalists, who are, who are in, in Internet of Things companies, who are, uh, you know, been involved with a, a number of different 
aspects of technology and sustainability. But more important, as I said, they're just really smart people. So we had a great conversation. This is just part of a uh, of you know looking at where we want to go in this with our events this year and we're five years into this and just how how we're talking about it and what's changed so it was really great and one of the people that came in is a, is a good good friend of mine named Andrew Beebe I've known Andrew and worked with him for almost 15 years uh, he's now managing director of a fairly new venture capital firm called Obvious Ventures I'm sure you know what it's about. Isn't it? it's obvious, right? <laughs> Sorry, uh, cheap, cheap shot. Uh, he was telling me that that when they when startups pitch to them, they say it's obvious why you should in- invest in us. So it's sort of an overworn meme here. But uh, Andrew has been uh, in clean energy now for about 15 years. He came. Uh, he's a refugee from the original, you know. Uh, web and, and dot com era. And I think it is a fun little side note that Andrew is at Obvious Ventures along with Ed Williams, who is the founder of Twitter and other well-known companies like Medium. And one of the smartest people I know in in, in this space in terms of thinking about where this world is going. Uh, and, and Obvious Ventures is, has its own take on on this space. They call it world positive investments. And so I brought him into Greenbiz Studio and then sat him down for a few minutes to talk about Obvious Ventures and, and what they're doing. So Andrew, as a venture capitalist, you're always asking entrepreneurs, what's your elevator pitch? Let me turn that on you. Obvious Ventures, what is the elevator pitch? Yeah, so Obvious Ventures is a new fund, uh, one and a half years old, and the focus is on early stage technology companies And that sounds a lot like a lot of other venture capital firms. We are focused on helping build uh, great new companies that become very, very large. That's our objective. And we're into it uh, for a lot of different reasons, but um, we want to make a lot of money as venture capitalists. That's what makes us look and feel like traditional venture capitalists. What probably sets us apart a little bit is we first ask ask ourselves and we ask the entrepreneurs who walk in the door, what are you doing that is world positive? And for us, world positive, it sounds amorphous, but it's pretty straightforward. What are you doing to radically transform the world for the better? How are you solving the world's biggest problems? And if you're solving the world's biggest problems with great teams, great technologies, and you know, going after these huge markets, that's probably something that's backable from an early stage venture fund like us. But we've been seeing in Silicon Valley, the, the venture firms taking on energy and uh, electric cars and a whole range of what used to be called clean technology, and it's now just technology. How is this different? Well, I think there was there's sort of a, um, a rearview mirror funny, which is sort of self, self-absorption of Silicon Valley, which is a little bit like the Zen question of the tree falling in the wilderness, which is if, if that company, if that clean tech company wasn't venture backed, but was a wild success, was it really a success? Of course it was, right? Tesla and First, First Solar and Solar City and a lot of other companies, a lot of those weren't venture backed. So it created a little bit of a negative feedback loop in the world of funding of clean technology. We think that today, there are people saying, hey, we're in this to change the world. But then there's you know, reality, which is when you're just doing a, uh, the, the next great valet parking app or babysitting <laughs> for puppies or whatever, <laughs> you know, 
comma, to make the world a better place, you sound like a parody on HBO. When you come in and say, we want to make sure that everyone in the planet has a viable method of finding clean drinking water, and here's some great new technology that's patent protectable and is going to do that, that's a whole different category. And that's the category we're going at. I've already invested in a puppy sharing service, so don't tell me it's not going to work. Uh, So give me an example of of one of your portfolio companies. Yeah, I mean, you know, let me also say we... um, we're big believers in this idea of resilience or anti-fragility. Anti-fragility. Uh, we want things that are anti-fragile, things that go into the future and are highly predictable in their success. So if you had the uh, babysitting for puppies, it might not be a bad idea. It's just that there will be 20 of them and it will be very hard to predict and their future will be very challenged in terms of long-term sustainability. The kinds of companies we invest in are companies like Inbala, which is a company um, managing two-way grid optimization software for utilities. It used to be the grid was one way. The electrons flowed from central power stations down out onto the grid, and utility managers today will tell you, we really don't know where those electrons are after a substation. Now, the electrons flow two ways. People have solar panels on their roofs that are pushing power out on the grid, but there are also batteries littered everywhere. There's demand response mechanisms that will slow and back up the flow of those electrons, and that needs two-way grid coordination software, air traffic control for those electrons. That's what Embala does. And we think that that is an anti-fragile company. We think that's a company that builds out the resilience necessary for a very resilient future. One of the problems with clean tech investing in the 1.0, in the 2000s primarily, is that uh, venture capitalists weren't ready to stick around for both the time and the investments needed to make some of these large bets work, uh, some of the big uh, concentrating solar farms and, and a number of other things. How is this different? What's your, how do you make, not make that the same mistake? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a couple of things. We're not, uh, I, we, we don't invest in science projects. We usually don't invest in capital intensive things that are going to require um, a decade plus to work and very large sequential rounds of financing. It could happen for sure. But luckily, the ecosystem has been built now. We have electric car companies that now need, and regular car companies for autonomous vehicles that need LiDAR on a chip, you know, laser radar on a chip. Right now for Google and Tesla and everyone else, those systems are, they cost $75,000. They need to cost about $100 and we need six per vehicle instead of one. And that's the kind of stuff that because the ecosystem exists, you can bite off a smaller piece of the technology need and scale it with a lot less capital. But we also do a lot of software. So, for example, we've invested in a company that is trying to reverse type 2 diabetes. It's a really exciting field. It's not clean tech per se. It's just health tech. It's just solving one of the world's biggest problems. And that's not an FDA approval, you know, five-year, 10-year biomedical investment thesis. It's something that's uh, smaller and more discrete and something that can scale much quicker. So how do you measure change? Because you're talking about, obviously, money is one part of it. That's what venture capitalists do. But you're talking about uh, world positive solutions. How do you uh, optimize for both? Uh, and can you really do that? Or or, or would you uh, would you give up a little money for more world positivity? Yeah, I mean, we... It's a great question. We talk about um, in partner meetings, we, we have many conversations about is this really world positive? Uh, a great sort of uh, challenge question for people and uh, brainstorming question is, 
is Uber world positive, right? Does it actually increase the per capita carbon footprint, let alone the job displacement or autonomous vehicles world positive? So we hash these things out all the time, and then we make a best guess. What we don't do is run super complex analytics on carbon footprints, on social impact, um, uh, transparency metrics, because we think those are um, false opportunities for precision. They just don't really exist in that way. And I think instead we go with our gut. We also will make significant investments based on the entrepreneurs. And I'll give you an example. We've invested in a um, still stealth company focused on augmented reality, a type of virtual reality. And, and we invested because we believe so much in the value set of the entrepreneur. The technology is incredible, but this is the kind of person that we want at the forefront of this question of what does augmented reality become? Is it a source of good or a source of evil? And we need leaders who are world positive. So we'll even do it just based on the people. Yeah. And ultimately, VCs say that you don't bet on companies so much as you bet on people. So we're really thrilled that you're part of the uh, Verge Brain Trust. Uh, thanks so much for, for being a part of that and, and for talking to me today. Uh, Andrew Beebe, Obvious Ventures. Thanks, Joel. Joining us today in GreenBiz Studio, we have a special guest, John Eddy, who's principal of the infrastructure division of the big firm Arup, is actually in the office. How's it going, John? Good, good, thank you. So I'm curious, we write a lot about big, massive trends in cities and the built environment, and one of them that we've been paying close attention to is this whole green infrastructure concept. Is that something that's coming into play with you guys day to day or something you're thinking about longer term? It, it's been dominating our project portfolio for quite a while. Mm -hmm. um, clients uh, obviously are, have different views on it and how deep they want to go and how much they, they want to incorporate it into their designs, but it's it's been dominant for quite some time. Gotcha. And then are you talking mostly on the city side or are other companies thinking about this? We hear it's, a lot about. It's both on the city side and on the on what we often call the private side, uh -huh. as, well as, as well as the public education side. Mm -hmm. um, we're finding that the easiest way to implement a good green infrastructure is, of course, when you when you have control over a lot of the land and not just a small parcel with a building on it. So campus-based design, city-based design is a wonderful way of working with multiple pieces of the infrastructure and getting them to sing together to create that green or that sustainable circumstance. Mm -hmm. um, and so working with cities to improve their streets, and, and stormwater and trying to create a better environment for the pedestrian at the same time and, and the users of the city um, is seems to be pretty easy. But, of course, in the construct of a city, there, there's a lot of challenges to that, both regulatory as well as physical. Mm -hmm. But San Francisco has been very successful into it. New York's incredibly successful. And other, even small cities around the country are doing a really tremendous job of focusing their not only maintenance of their city streets, but also their upgrading of their city streets around 
uh, sustainable green um, and, and the environment. Mm-hmm. And I know sort of a related concept that we're hearing more about, I've written about it in cities like New Orleans has gotten a lot of attention, is this resilience idea. Correct. So maybe going a step further and thinking about off-grid energy or porous surfaces to absorb water. How do you think about some of that stuff? It all plays into it. The, um, the element of it really needs to start, first of all, with doing as little as you can. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the one of the challenges that always comes along with mentioning the word sustainable, and we're finally getting out of that habit, is that sustainable is more. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right. no, like if you're the project sponsor, oh my goodness, we have to do more, and are you going to ask me for something else, and et cetera. And so the rolling it back and saying, no, no, what can we cut out? Right. What can we reduce so that, uh, and particularly if you're doing your accounting based on carbon and money, if you can remove things, uh, then of course you're you're a lot more sustainable than if you're adding things to make it sustainable. The whole notion of providing uh, uh, multiple opportunities for one investment. Mm-hmm. So you, you know you mentioned porous pavement; um, it has terrific consequences for stormwater and control and cleanliness. It has great opportunities to reintroduce water into the into the water tables and, and restore those. Um, it it has opportunities uh, to to avoid constructing a lot of piping and underground things. And it's that kind of multiple benefit that we're always striving for in all the projects that we do. Mm-hmm. And when it comes, you mentioned carbon emissions. And I, know, I heard an area you're working in, which we're following very closely, is the future of transportation, which is obviously a big deal for cities and all the companies that are trying to move stuff around. Um, so autonomous driving is one of the sort of longer range things we're looking at. Also, obviously, the whole transportation as a service thing. How does that change the way we might fundamentally build urban areas? There's a lot. There's been a lot of promise on the driverless side, where uh, vast amounts of real estate become available for other things, and of course, that the first, parking space, the parking space, yeah. the the space that the roads utilize, just in moving people around. Um, certainly, you can you know assess the geographies within cities and urban areas that of how much parking there is and do some mathematics to decide that you can do away with a bunch of parking structures and things like that and parking parking lots. But we're we're not ready to give over every last bit of of uh, travel way uh, to something else because the, the jury's out on whether driverless cars are going to dramatically, dramatically reduce the amount of vehicles on the road. Uh, and I, I want to the, my example, my best example is when we get to an autonomous circumstance where virtually all the cars in a city are, are autonomous, there is going to be a level of expectation of your delivery of you to your destination, mm-hmm. the predictability of that trip. Now you have a transit system that can be readily manipulated in a positive way to move people through the city as easily as, as possible. So there's going to be a high level of predictability on the trip. The question mark around predictability for an autonomous system is when you get in and out of the car. Mm-hmm. That's the fundamental time. Like, how long is that going to take? What are you getting in and out with? Is right. it groceries? Is it just you? Is it the family? And that whole interaction. So that immediately means that you have to take that car off the street or at least to the curb mm-hmm. and have a through lane that is operating to create that predictability of travel time Mm -hmm. and then the human interaction lane that's off to the side the human interaction lane lane. that's the human interaction lane where Uh you're coming in and out 
And how the cities are constructed around that, providing those two facilities, mm-hmm. uh, really will dictate how much land is given back to other uses in the city. And the you know the the message that I've been sending is that in in the very dense environments where that human interaction is happening very frequently, um, you're going to need two lanes. And if you're going in two directions, you're going to need four lanes. Right. So you're not necessarily going to turn a four-lane street with a couple of uh, parking lanes on either side into a single uh, two-lane utopia. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's going to have to be some more space, property given over to to operating the driverless vehicle program. Right, right. But it's, it's still promising. I mean, look, yeah, you still want it. There's nothing in that equation that you don't want. Yeah. It's just that let's be careful of how much we think we're going to be able to move from one use to another use. Mm-hmm. Not everything will be green parkscape or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It'll be better, but it won't. It may not be all the way to utopia. Yeah. The, so the one related part of that, I guess, is like the between then and now type of thing when you've got right. some cars that maybe are experimental self-driving. You've got your normal, you know, gas-powered car, EVs with their own infrastructure needs. How do you plan for that sort of like crowded, a little bit crazy landscape? <laughs> Well, the hope, of course, is that, and the objectives of many of the developers of driverless technology is to be able to introduce their technology into today's world as it is now, mm-hmm. and that they that the take-up of that driverless scenario occurs while there's manually driven vehicles operating in our, our cities and our, and our regions. The, the technology is pretty challenging. The human is not a great uh, machine to interact with for another <laughs> right. machine. Uh, it's pretty unpredictable and, and, and not always uh, obeying the laws of physics as well as the laws of uh, of driving. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, the question is, I think it's going to come down to the elected officials in the cities really stepping back and the population stepping back and saying, okay, how badly do we want the benefits of driverless vehicles? How badly do we want the safety element? the potential environmental benefits, the, the reduction in how much uh, pavement and structure we, we dedicate to cars, uh, the noise, the, the because most driverless vehicles are now being developed around an electronic uh, electric propulsion platform, mm-hmm. uh, the pollution. Uh, how badly do we want to either eliminate these things or embrace things these things? Which will then dictate, do we want to facilitate the use of driverless vehicles and reap all those benefits by removing the driver mm-hmm. and saying, look, in these parts of the city or these zones, you can't operate a manual vehicle. So those zones can feel and, and experience the benefits that come with driverless. That is likely to, to accelerate the arrival and use of driverless vehicles so that by doing that, you eliminate some of the technological challenges that go along with that human interface mm-hmm. uh, with another with a manually driven vehicle. Uh, otherwise, we have to wait for the technology to fully, fully flesh itself out so that it can operate uh, in a mixed in a mixed circumstance. Yeah. My my charge and my my desire is that we do. Let's go ahead and start cordoning off parts of cities and saying, look, you at least have to have a connected vehicle. So they can talk to each other, and even if it's humanly driven, it can it, it electronically can actuate with the driverless vehicle and make sure there aren't we avoid most of the collisions that would otherwise happen. Uh, at least have that 
if not have a fully cordoned off area that says just within this area, it has to be driverless. You can't operate a manually driven vehicle there. Hmm. Well, it'll be an interesting transition to watch for sure. John Eddy with Arup, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. So I'm sure lots of people are looking forward to the long weekend coming up, but we've also got a full slate for the week ahead. Joining me now is managing editor Elsa Wenzel. How's it going? Oh, not bad. How about you? Good, good. Uh, So what do we have coming up? We have President's Day, of course, on Monday. (laughs) So I imagine you might be out camping or just staycationing on your couch, but Tuesday through Friday we'll have a pretty packed lineup as lauren said the world wildlife fund just launched the markets institute to advance sustainable food and the nonprofit is engaging a variety of players in business and beyond including financial institutions senior writer barbara grady is taking a closer look she's also talking with a company called fathom which calls its tool a smart grid for water so watch out for that and Lauren, you're looking at the business of community solar, or actually, where is the community in community solar <laughs> as more big corporations get involved? That looks like a um, pretty interesting one. Also coming soon is a piece from Conrad McCarran, the senior VP of As You Sow Advocacy Group. He's going to explore the problem of plastics recycling, drawing from the new study, The New Plastics Economy, from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which came out a few weeks ago. So check out that one. It was super interesting. Conrad will have an interesting twist, I'm sure. In the meantime, enjoy your love hangover from Valentine's Day, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) And in the meantime, if you're looking to plot some plans to go to nice warm places, February 23rd through 25th will be in Phoenix for Green Biz 16, and June 21st through the 23rd, we will head to Honolulu, Hawaii for Verge, Hawaii. So take a look, go to greenbiz.com and click on the events tab at the top of the page. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you, Lauren, as always. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to the organization's stories and events we've mentioned in this episode by going to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks always to 350's producer, Soraya Melkonian. You can subscribe to Green Biz 350 through a variety of channels, such as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And of course, you'll find it every Friday morning on greenbiz.com or through our daily email newsletter called Green Buzz. As always, send us your feedback, your ideas, your comments. We love to hear from you. Send those to 350 at greenbiz.com. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time, have a great day. 